Hello, and welcome to Across Acoustics, the official podcast of the Acoustical Society of America's Publications Office. This is the inaugural podcast where we will highlight authors' research from our four publications, the Journal of Acoustical Society of America, also known as JAZA, JAZA Express Letters, Proceedings of Meetings on Acoustics, also known as POMA, and Acoustics Today. I am your host, Melanie Walters, Publications Business Manager at ASA. Today, we will be speaking with co-authors of Rapid Quantitative Imaging of High-Intensity Ultrasonic Pressure Fields, published in the August 2020 issue of the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America. Our three authors are all from Vanderbilt University Institute of Imaging Science and include Huiwen Luo, Research Assistant, William Grissom, Associate Professor of Biomedical Imaging, and Charles Kasky, Associate Professor of Radiology and Radiological Science. Hello to everyone, and Hi. welcome to our first podcast. Thanks. How is everyone doing today? Great. Okay. That's great. today. Perfect. <laughs> um, now, can each of you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, can we start with Huiwen? Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Huiwen Luo. Uh, I'm glad to talk with you here. Um, currently, I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate in biomedical engineering and working with Dr. Will Grissom. So my research is mainly on visualizing the therapeutic-focused ultrasound by optical and MRI techniques. And William? Yes, yeah, so, um, my name is Will Grissom. I'm uh, currently an associate professor in, in biomedical engineering at Vanderbilt here. I've been here about, um, I think this is my 10th year. And before that, I worked at GE for a couple of years in their, in their global research division on MRI and, and uh, MRI-guided focused ultrasound. Before that, I was a postdoc uh, at Stanford with Kim Butts in uh, focused ultrasound. And before that, I was a grad student at University of Michigan uh, working in functional MRI mostly. And uh, before that, I was a, an undergrad at the University of Michigan in electrical engineering. Uh, so started in electrical, then went to biomedical, uh, Stanford GE, and then have been at Vanderbilt for many years now. Um, and have worked with these three fine folks for quite a, these other fine folks here for quite a while now. And Charles? Um, hi, yeah, Charles Kasky. I'm an associate professor now at, uh, at Vanderbilt University Institute of Imaging Science uh, in radiology and radiological sciences. I've uh, been there about, I'm going on eight years now, uh, at having having worked uh, there at Vanderbilt, and uh, came there by way of uh, Dr. Catherine Ferrara's lab, who was working at that time at UC Davis, which is where I did some of my uh, training uh, at both the postdoctoral and graduate student level and uh, working in the field of ultrasound. Great. Now let's dive into your research. Rapid quantitative imaging of high intensity ultrasonic pressure fields. Charles, could you please describe what high intensity ultrasonic pressure fields are? Sure. So um, there, this is the process of focusing sound that is in that is above the hearing range. So that's why it's ultrasound. Um, and it's the, the process of focusing it to a small point in the same way that a magnifying glass focuses light. Um, you can create acoustic apertures that do this with sound. And so generally the process is you, it will be an emitting source that's kind of shaped like a spherical cap and emits down to a small point that's about the size of a grain of rice. And 
So you have this small focal energy and that's uh, generally, so what that's you know, being explored for frequently is trying to use that energy in a medical scenario to, to try to um, either burn, like ablate thermally specific areas that you may otherwise want to surgically remove. Uh, and it's, uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the field of study there. And so there's a lot of activity in the, the medical world now to try to use this to create uh, incisionless surgeries and things. Yeah. So you, and you can, so you can focus it to this point without affecting any of the intervening tissue, which is really what makes it non-invasive. Um, oh, that you can focus to a point deep in the tissue without affecting intervening tissue. Ah, I see. Okay. And you did say medical. So is there any other types of treatments or applications that utilize uh, high intensity focus ultrasound or is it basically for these medical procedures? I I think it's most wi- yeah it's most widely used in, in medical procedures. There, I mean, there certainly are sound focusing applications mm-hmm. outside of this, bar uh, and things like that. But the yeah the um, I do think that the main yeah the main use here would be in uh, is medical. And so the main applications is through the uh, that have really received the most FDA approval are in the skull. We're really creating an incision uh, in, in craniotomy is a huge invasive uh, task. And so the process there is to focus the sound through the skull and into the, uh, in this case, I think the main uh, FDA approved application is ablation of the uh, thalamus for essential tremor. Um, And so, yeah, so it's sort of like a neurosurgery, being explored as a neurosurgery that doesn't require incision. And it's also approved for um, ablation of uterine fibroids as a treatment for fibroids. So it it's a deployed technology and a lot of excitement surrounding it now. It sounds like it. Uh, Will, could you please explain the mapping of high-intensity focus ultrasound beams? Yeah, so if we're going to be putting this energy into the body at some point uh, where we can't necessarily see it immediately, we, we need to get know about, we need to know how much power we're putting into the body, and we also need to know where it's going. So there's a, so a very common task when you're developing or maintaining these uh, therapeutic ultrasound systems is, is mapping the beam to make sure that the amount of acoustic power you're putting into the body matches what you expect it to be, and also that the location and distribution of it uh, spatially in the tissue matches what you want it to be. So regular beam mapping uh, is, is, is performed in the development and, and maintenance of, of therapeutic systems. Uh, when developing these new techniques and hardware, both, both on the imaging side, since for imaging you need to calibrate where exactly your signal is coming from and, and that your transducer is performing uh, as you expect it to be, and also in therapeutic ultrasound where it actually tells you exactly, it, it tells you, um, you know, exactly where the tissue is and how much energy you're putting, you're putting to it uh, to manipulate it. And it's, de- it's definitely desirable to be able to regularly map acoustic beams uh, for regular quality assurance in the clinic to make sure that the work, that there are no new aberrations in the beam or any failures of the devices that you might not otherwise see uh, to make sure overall that, that, that patient safety is, is, mm-hmm. is maintained, right? And that proper functioning of the systems is maintained. Okay. And can you describe the old methods of mapping uh, focus ultrasound pressure beams and why um, they are inadequate? Yeah, so so hydrophones uh, are devices. These are these are the, really the gold standard method for mapping ultrasound beams. And what they are is essentially a single, uh, usually piezo transducer. It'll be a, a piezoelectric uh, element uh, with a membrane on it attached to the end of a needle. 
that is moved around a water tank, sometimes using a, a motorized or robotic kind of translation stage. There, you'll have your ultrasound transducer in the water tank, and then you'll have this needle uh, also in the water tank that's sort of facing the transducer, and you move the needle uh, hydrophone around uh, to map out the beam. And uh, what, what the needle gives you is then uh, time traces of the pressure that the needle is sensing at its end point. And you, you record all those measurements and you can then say, okay, I'll take the maximum value or the sort of average value of those pressures that I'm getting and I'll make an image of that. And so that is often what we refer to as like the gold standard bean mapping method. Uh, and it can be highly accurate and precise, but it's not very convenient or portable. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is you, you, you have to have it in a water tank. You have to also have the transducer in a water tank, which means removing the transducer from whatever clinical system it's set up into, uh, which is not usually a trivial task. Uh, it's not very portable. Uh, you can't, you know, just easily take a water tank and set it up precisely at whatever site and get it set and get it running very quickly. Um, and the other way to think about it is that is that it's it's great at giving you lots of temporal information because if you sit it at a point and you just start recording, you get a long time trace of what the ultra of what the pressure field is that you're receiving at the tip of that hydrophone. Mm -hmm. But then you have to mechanically move it to every other point. And so and for a lot of these quality assurance tasks and, and a lot of ultrasound experiments, we don't necessarily care so much about being able to efficiently get a lot of time information. We want more a spatial distribution in a lot of these applications. Um, and so, so it's not very well suited for that task of rapidly getting spatial information because you have to mechanically steer it around. At the same time, they're also, um, they're also sensitive to high pressures. It's easy to uh, burn one out by cavitation uh, or da damage the end of it by cavitation when you use actual therapeutic ultrasound pressure levels. Uh, so you often have to do the actual measurements at lower pressures and then assume that everything just scales up linearly, which isn't necessarily guaranteed that that, that will be the case when you go up to the, to the high pressures. Um, so we were interested in developing a method that kind of had the opposite strength, that it would be kind of crummy at giving you uh, temporal information, but very good at giving you spatial information uh, and very rapid at that and, and sh that it should be very easy to set up. Um, there are also other methods out there uh, in the literature for characterizing ultrasound beams that are less used than, well, uh, some of them are less used than, than uh, hydrophones, such as radi radiation force balances are, are essentially these uh, mechanical devices that you turn on the ultrasound and you actually literally push on a lever and you measure like what displacement that gives you. Uh, and then that like can be a measure of the, of the strength of the ultrasound beam. It doesn't give you any spatial information, but it does give you quantitative uh, information about how much power you're putting out from, from the transducer. Um, and then there, and then there have been other, our method falls in the category of optical beam mapping methods. And there have, is a long history of, of optical beam mapping methods based on, you know, f photographing beams or, or methods that are uh, called laser Schlieren type methods, um, which are optics methods that are, that are a bit more complicated than what, than what we're doing here. Okay. Huwen, uh, how is your rapid projection imaging method different from what is currently being used? 
So uh, as well mentioned, our methods falls under the category of optical beam mapping methods, uh, which has been uh, used around for many years. And different from the conventional instruments, uh, what we're doing here is a stripped down version of Schlieren that doesn't uh, does not require fancy optical setups, but still yields rapid and valuable info information about an ultrasound beam. So this method can be uh, implemented in a small and portable package uh, with now moving parts to rapidly uh, map force beams. So there are no parts to experience where from the force beam, so our method is endurable finally. Yeah. Will, how did you conceive this idea? Uh, yeah, so uh, Charles and I were at a, a meeting of the Society for Therapeutic Ultrasound, I think like way back in maybe 2014 even. It was in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, and uh, we were at the meeting. We were watching a talk by Gail Terhar uh, about ultrasound uh, dosimetry or dosimetry for therapeutic ultrasound. And one of the slides that she flashed up on during her talk was a slide showing a technique that she talked about called zebrography, meaning, uh, referencing zebra stripes. And what she was showing was that you could take a ultrasound transducer and put it in a tank of water. And if you had, if that tank was clear such that you could look through it, if you turned on the beam, because that beam would change the index of refraction uh, in the water, because the index of refraction is is uh, proportional to pressure, uh, because it would change the index of refraction in the water, you could take a piece of paper with black and white stripes on it, put it on the other side of the tank, and when you viewed it from the opposite side through the ultrasound beam, you would see that the stripes would blur in a pattern that looks like an ultrasound beam. And so uh, she called this zebrography because of the black and white stripes. And it's kind of, uh, she sort of referred to it as like a sort of a party trick in the ultrasound community uh, for, that, that people have known about for many years. Uh, and then later on, this got me and Charles thinking as we were walking around uh, Vegas, uh, thinking, you know, is there a way that we could, that we could build on that to, uh, to make it quantitative? Because it seemed that nobody had made the method quantitative before, or really rigorously studied the, the physics of it. Um, yeah. And, and so, I'll let, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was kind of the conception. And then it's sort of like, uh, yeah, that that eventually led to us, yeah, writing, kind of fleshing it out more, writing a grant. And um, then it kind of came came to fruition that, that way, just kind of really wanting to look at the signal that we knew was there, but then like thinking like, oh, how do you actually measure this? And then kind of built it up around that. Yeah, we 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 uh, got a couple. We started by getting a couple of undergrad uh, uh, biomedical engineering undergrads working on it. Had a couple of kind of cycling through, just so we could get just enough little bit of like uh, proof of principle data to show that it could work. We also had like three D maps. We had at one point we had a student making three D uh, beam maps. They weren't quantitative. That he would just sort of back project, take take photographs as he was moving it the tank around the beam. Uh, and taking photographs, or maybe we just assumed axial, I think we just assumed uh, rotational symmetry, actually. And then he would take photographs and, and was able to reconstruct a, a kind of a cool looking 3D beam map uh, from that. And eventually we kind of had enough uh, momentum there where we decided we could write a grant on it. And so we we uh, wrote a grant for an R21. This is sort of the high risk, high reward track of grants at the NIH. And, and, we, and we got that um, uh, I think it started maybe in 2016, maybe is when we finally had the grant, um, finally had some money to work on it. 
And then Wei joining, uh, really, she she really got it all together once, you know, really got it working properly, and with that with that support. Yeah, Huiwen really took it home to like uh, figure out how to do it physically in the tank and how to rigorously connect the theory uh, together, you know, and how to do the experiments in a rigorous enough way that the theory that we could actually, you know, build our reconstructions based on the theory, and then and then um, expect that our experimental data would work out with all of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, very nice. Well, congratulations on the grant and then finding the right combination of yeah. people. Yeah, it made all the difference. It takes a while sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Huiwen, uh, what is the background oriented Schillerin imaging and what is the CW version that you have come up with? I know you mentioned that as we were speaking. Could you explain a little more? Yeah, sure. So the traditional background-oriented Schlieren imaging uh, is used for the flow and fluid uh, visualization quantitatively. So this technique usually uses a camera to image a background pattern through a non-uniform non refractive index field. So original uh, background-oriented Schlieren uh, imaging assumes the non-uniform refractive index field uh, is constant. Uh, and static. So, uh, however, in BOS imaging of uh, focused ultrasound, the refractive index field actually changes dynamically during the pro propagation of first uh, waves. So, we assume the uh, steady, steady state ultrasonic waves and uh, simplify the hardware setup by allowing the beam uh, to run continuously uh, during the acquisition. So this is so CW uh, actually means the continuous wave, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so and it works out that that what we what we end up getting in these photographs that we take of the blurred beam is like a histogram of the history of where the little dots that we're imaging in the background have been shifted to. So uh, so you know in typical Schlieren imaging, uh, it's actually used a lot in. Um, I think the most of the literature on this topic uh, of background-oriented Schlieren imaging yeah. is in is in like aerodynamics research and fluid dynamics research, where you have water or air moving maybe through a wind tunnel at with different distributions of pressure through that wind tunnel, which slightly changes the index of refraction as you're looking through it. And then if you take a sort of a random dot pattern, or maybe it's a structured dot pattern, and put it on the other side of the tunnel and look at it, you get the same effect as in this zebrography technique where, where everything blurs around. Um, but, but in those situations, you can usually assume that that, that flow of the field is, is not changing over time. Uh, whereas here we have the ultrasound beam is constantly oscillating uh, at this megahertz level frequency, but we're trying to take a picture of it with a conventional consumer grade camera that can't nearly uh, freeze time uh, at, the, at the fine resolution that you would need. Uh, to uh, to really capture an instantaneous point, so so that's why we when we end up calling it uh, continuous wave is because we're actually getting many 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 uh, oscillations of the ultrasound within one photo, and so what we end up with is truly like a blurring pattern. Uh, so this Schlieren is, Schlieren is German for streak, uh, and and that's why it's called this this Schlieren technique, um, and so that's why we that's why we call it CWs because we end up like looking watching the the shift of, of, of the beam over time. And we can't actually resolve exactly where it's been at each, you know, microsecond level time point in the, in the, um, uh, in the ultrasound, uh, in, you know, at the ultrasound time scale. 
but we can see this overall pattern. And, and again, we get, end up with a histogram. The photograph is actually a histogram of where the ultra of where the ultrasound beam has shifted the background pattern at each location of the background pattern. Okay. And now uh, machine learning is all around us. Um, and in this project, you use a deep neural network. Uh, what did that do for you? So, so when the ultrasound beam shape is fixed, so the back uh, blurring patterns uh, on the background pattern, actually they are uh, corresponding to the projected pressure amplitude at each location. So uh, we already have uh, uh, derived the forward model of to relate the projected pressure uh, pressure waves to the blurring patterns, but it's so hard to uh, get the uh, project the pressure from the blurring patterns. So due to the so so the so using a deep neural network uh, just came to my mind, and so uh, in this work uh, we used the deep neural network to solve the difficult uh, inverse problem of reconstructing the project the pressure amplitudes from the blurring patterns uh, in the photographs. That's why I I decided to use a deep neural network, and finally it actually worked. Yes. Yeah, this is Huiwen's big innovation in the project, right? She This is completely her something she brought to the project. Um, that really made it work in the end, uh, and 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 I think this is kind of a cool application of deep learning because in this application we can easily, if we have an ultrasound beam and we have a background pattern, we can easily run the equations forward to calculate what the photos photograph is going to look like that we're going to capture with the camera. But going in the reverse direction is really hard uh, mathematically; it's highly nonlinear, uh, and and that's what Huiwen realized that. That's kind of an ideal application for machine learning, and, and Huiwen realized that when she when she took this on, uh, is that is that calculating those forward images that we can use, for example, for training the neural network, is easy, uh, but going the reverse direction is really hard. Back to the information that we want to extract from the photographs. That's the hard part, and uh, and we don't know of any other way to do it other than using machine learning, uh, and that and that's where that's where she had that idea, and that's what really uh, made it fundamentally possible to get these quantitative maps out of the blurring patterns uh, that we photograph. <laughs> and Huiwen, how did you make sure that uh, this particular method worked? So as we mentioned earlier, uh, the uh, uh, hydrophones uh, are widely used and are uh, the gold standard in the field. So, uh, so people believe the results of hydrophones. So that's uh, so we compare our results uh, with the measurements of uh, hydrophones to evaluate the uh, feasibility and accuracy of our method. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lots of careful hydrophone. Uh, we used optical yeah. hydrophones, which can tolerate really high pressures. Uh, but they have a trade-off in sensitivity, and they're also way more expensive than yeah. uh, mm -hmm. conventional hydrophones. And they uh, still break. They yeah, still, they still break. They uh, still ultimately break. <laughs> I think we had to have the ones we used here serviced a couple times during the course of this project. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and one of the cool things about this uh, optical beam mapping method is that there are no moving parts, right? There's really nothing yeah. to break unless you get the camera wet or something, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, it's... There's nothing to break, really. There's not an object in the beam, so it's a standpoint of things not breaking. And and in terms of it being an invasive measurement, you know, having an object in the beam that you're trying to measure 
is not usually desirable. So that's, uh, or, you know, it can interfere. So it's nice with this method that it's fully optical like that. So. Mm -hmm. okay, very nice. And now how can others reproduce this work and what applications do you envision it for? So, you start? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so so actually we have uh, described the details of the protocol of this work, and also we shared our code for the control software imaging acquisition and reconstructions on GitHub. Uh, I believe the GitHub link is uh, in our paper. So everyone can rep reproduce this work if they have the required equipment and they can use our code uh, to uh, uh, do the optical beam mapping. Yes. Yep. Yeah, so we try. Yeah, we tried to be uh, real open with this with this work. I mean, if it's a and you know, and it's built from fairly uh, in terms of in terms of acoustic measurement, very affordable tools in the sense that it uses a an iPad or a you know small screen and then a camera. Um, so it's all pretty. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty accessible in that respect. Um, and so you know, in terms of you know, I think so. You also ask about like how it could be maybe used and. Um, with that, you know, maybe they could find, you know, could find a role, uh, certainly not as a full-on replacement for the great acoustic measurement things that we have with hydrophones and other things, but maybe to supplement that as a, uh, maybe a routine uh, quality assessment tool or something like that might be a, an area where this technology could find use. You kind of have, uh, because it's, it's low cost and accessible, um, they, you know, you could envision it being something that was performed maybe more routinely than some of the calibration methods that are currently available that require a bit more expensive hardware, maybe specialized skills, things like that. So, yeah, one of the things that we're really interested in is is uh, mapping beams through the skull, um, and there we're interested more in sort of continuous wave measurements as this technique gives you, uh, and we also. Uh, you know, have a lot of different skull pieces we'd like to put in front of it uh, and, and measure fairly rapidly. So it's kind of well suited to experiments like that where you want to you want a, a spatial beam map, but don't care about so much the temporal dimension. And you'd like to be able to rapidly uh, change some experimental variable and repeat your measurements again and again. That this this technique would allow you to do that, you know, changing like uh, multiple one or multiple variables in an experiment and quickly getting spatial beam information. Um, from that. I don't know of any other method that could do that um, in, in the yeah, lab. It's kind of like high throughput measurement scenarios. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. And is there anything else about your research that you would like our listeners and readers to, to know or understand? Well, uh, maybe Charles, you could tell us a little bit about what, what stuff we're working on now, because Huiwen has kind of moved on from this project and it has to do sort of with a big project that Charles is leading. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, we're we're super enthusiastic about the seeing what's happening with transcranial ultrasound uh, clinically cur it, currently. And we're, we're really focused on trying to see how we can develop next generation of those tools as you know, really on, as a as a preclinical primarily research lab. We're um, we're looking a lot at, at neuromodulation with ultrasound. So the use of these this focused acoustic acoustic beam at lower uh, intensity. So not intensities that will cause thermal ablation, but um, you know, so intensities that have very little thermal energy, but can affect neurons. Uh, so using this as a tool to either investigate the brain um, by, by stimulating small focal regions and seeing how, they, how it interacts with, um, 
with the rest of the brain are, you know, if one node of, the, of a circuit in the brain is, is stimulated. And we do this within the MRI, which is also where a lot of the, the therapies are done. And so in that case, you have the ability to really guide the beam as well as the MRI as a tool to see how the brain is functioning. So you sort of have this, this suddenly now you have ultrasound as a tool to probe brain activity as well as image the outcomes of that pro probing of brain activity. And there's just been a lot of interesting you know, hardware development, uh, imaging, uh, image science development uh, associated with that. And so that's kind of a direction that we, we you know, kind of are heading with this. Um, a broader, broader field than the strictly the measurement part, which of course is the, a crucial component because you want to know, you know, how well are you focusing through the skull and these, these types of things. Yeah, last year we got uh, one of the awards. Through, was it last year it started the 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 heal grant, the heal mechanism, yeah. um, which aims to replace opioids with device treatment, novel device treatments. Yeah. Um, so we have a big grant with Charles uh, Lehman, an uh, investigator named Lehman Chen, and I have this grant where we're building up a uh, a human system that we're first evaluating preclinically uh, to treat different pain regions in the brain with ultrasound. Uh, and at the same time as we're treating with the ultrasound, we're building the MRI capabilities to be able to do functional brain imaging to see what effects the, the ultrasound is having on the networks of the brain. Um, and so before Huiwen joined my lab, she used to work in MRI, and I was able to convince her when she joined to work on this crazy project. And now, now, I, now she's back on working on sort of MRI technical developments for this new project. Uh, specifically, she's looking at Looking uh, using MRI pulse sequences to to image the tissue displacement due to the ultrasound, so we can see where in the brain uh, the ultrasound is is targeted and 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 how strong that is, and whether it's distorted by the skull. Um, these are all sort of critical measures that we need to know if we're going to be doing these these procedures. Uh, I think our listeners have learned a lot about um, about your research. And I would like to thank you all for participating in our podcast. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and as a layman myself, learning about in high intensity ultrasonic pressure fields. This was definitely a learning experience for me. So I'd like to thank you very much for joining. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Melanie. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Across Acoustics. If you would like to hear more interviews from our authors about their research, please subscribe and find us on your preferred podcast platform. Mm -hmm.